Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President, Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. It's great to have you back again. It's always interesting, I think, when we look at how people progress through their careers. There's a number, for example, of chiropractors that have gone on to become medical practitioners and bring a unique perspective to their practice. There are not so many, however, chiropractors that go on to become orthopedic surgeons. If you're in Melbourne, you might know of David Delahart. There's one. But until recently, I thought he was the only one in Australia. Well, that's not the case, David. You've got competition out there. Um, today, we're going to be talking with a, um, a, a, a chiropractor originally from South Africa who's had quite an interesting uh, experience in her practice career up until this point of view. And normally, this is the point where I'll read off her, her bio, but... Um, Dr. Debbie Lees, uh, it's, 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 her bio is so interesting that I'm going to leave her to add all the colour uh, to that particular part of the story. She's a postgraduate orthopaedic fellow at Princess Alexandra Hospital and the Lady Salento Children's Hospital. And Debbie, it's so great to have you on the ACA podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's great to join you guys. Now, I was trying to detect if there was much of a, a strong South African uh, accent there. I don't really pick it up too uh, too much there. Is It's a bit of a mix. Um, it, it, do, you, do you feel like you've got a bit of a South African accent at all, or is that all past and past now? I can still be proper South African ah, if I There we go. You are just pretty <laughs> it good It depends on. if we're standing around the braai or not. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Well, perhaps just for uh, our listeners out there, give us a little bit of a snapshot of um, how you became to be a chiropractor and um, and now as a, a, a spinal orthopedic surgeon up in Brisbane. Um, so, yeah, I started off my journey in uh, Durban, South Africa. Um, I actually sort of gained an interest in medicine per se and also particularly in the spine with my brother. Um, my brother actually had severe cerebral palsy, so I grew up um, seeing how the medical profession interacted with him and then over the years watching his scoliosis develop um, and also just seeing the numerous surgeries that he went through and, and spending a lot of my childhood in hospital seeing these doctors poking and prodding him um, and all the rehabilitation. Um, I, I found quite a calling to medicine. It's something I wanted to do, but unfortunately my parents just couldn't pay for me to go to med school, even though I'd applied a number of times and, and been accepted. They were just sort of, you know, really sorry, can't afford to pay for it, and I couldn't raise the cash myself. Um, and then when I really sat down and thought about what I wanted out of a medical job, the things that would bring me joy and what I really wanted to do, it, it still came down to being really focused on the spine. Um, and that's when I met a man called Dr. Ray Rethman, who ended up being a fantastic mentor through my study years. And he was a local chiropractor, and he sort of took me under his wing, introduced me to chiropractic, and that's how I, I found myself on the chiropractic sort of journey. Um, finished my studies and then had, unfortunately, a couple of incidents in South Africa where sort of my safety was in question and uh, literally then just, just made the move to, to the UK, really, for safety's sake. And also... I think you reach a point when you've studied for so long, you say, that's it, I want to spread my wings, I want to see what the rest of the world has got, and off you go. Um, worked around London for a bit, 
got a job up in Norwich, was working with the Forkers of the Norwich Chiropractic Centre, which was, you know, a, a great experience, particularly in my early years. Um, and then I heard Sigafu speak. Um, and I lay the blame for me going to medicine purely at Sigafoos's door. Oh, really? Um, for, yeah, absolutely. Him and Reggie Gold, they're the biggest culprits. Um, and I remember doing a seminar, and it was one of his sit-in type things, which is small group, and you really sort of examine what you're doing, where your life's taken you. Um, and I came back, and at that point, my husband, who's also a chiropractor, had had his business going, is working really hard to make that successful. I'd started my own business and I came home and I said hey honey guess what I'm putting in my application to study medicine and I think right there and then my husband was sort of like that's it the relationship's over we're done <laughs> um, so anyway um made this decision to do it it was kind of like you know it had been one of those things I'd wanted to do since childhood um got the opportunity and then when I had a real heart to heart with my husband, he said, you know, you're going to spend your life regretting a door that you never at least tried to open one last time. And if it doesn't open, you can close it. You can walk away. You can be happy knowing that you've, you've really given it your all. Um, and then the next awkward conversation was when I had to come back to him about six months later and say, hey, honey, they've accepted my application. <laughs> you think maybe he was just saying, yes, go for it, hoping that you know, secretly maybe that door wouldn't open. Yeah, I think that was pretty, I think he was thinking, you know, Deb, you passed it, you're a bit of an old goat, you know, the brain's gone to mush with the years, really, you should just, you know, sit back and, uh, and enjoy the chiropractic life. And, and I blame him. And I, I make a joke about Sigafoos and Reggie Gold, but it, it really remains a, a strong undercurrent in my practice. And that what they showed me was how joyful chiropractic practice is, how holistic it is, and, and what a fantastic profession it is. And Every morning I have to wake up next to my husband who leaps out of bed so on fire for the day. You know, he loves what he does. Um, and I really sort of had to look at myself and say, I love what I do. I love chiropractic. It's just not where I feel 100% of my skills are. And and it was them that really made me want that joy in practice, that 100% commitment, which I think if I was truthful, I was very committed to my practice, but I didn't have that absolute joy in practice. And what I found now is that I have an absolute joy in what I do. And it's even more joyful that I can, I now have the opportunity to introduce a lot more people to chiropractic that may not have heard the story about what chiropractors do and, and how they do it. And I'm, I'm in a, you know, a unique position to actually bridge both camps and actually introduce a lot of people um, to potentially some life changing um, intervention, essentially. So you did your medical training in uh, the UK then? I did. So, yeah, Newcastle of uh, uh, Newcastle University. At the time, it was uh, University of Newcastle upon Tyne, but it's it's changed now. So, And then you yeah. had a stint in um, uh, working in the Middle East as well. Well, that sounded fascinating. How did that all come about? Yeah, so one of my trainers um, was originally from Iraq and had fled during the war to the UK and essentially was a consultant when he arrived in the UK but had to re-go through all his training. And... Um, he then was one of my trainers, and again, a, a very influential man, a, amazing dedication to his job and to his craft. Um, and he used to do these charity trips back to Iraq, very committed to, you know, bringing help to people who who just no longer had access to help back in his hometown. And and we got quite involved as a group of volunteers in terms of 
um, getting both people and skills together. So when we went over, it was about providing a clinical outreach, doing the surgeries that we could do at the time, um, taking across our medications and then setting up potential theatre lists for the next time we returned. And a lot of that wasn't war injuries. This was more the fallout of having people have their healthcare system collapse. Yes. So we're, you know, we're in our system, we screen babies for dislocated hips, for all kinds of genit congenital deformities. And these people had no access to any care like that. And everyone was really focused on the war-related injuries, yeah. um, the trauma, the amputations, the big disfigurements. But no one was taking care of the community in terms of, you know, young babies born with, with various deformities and children who were now well into their teens who were now struggling with daily life because they hadn't had medical care early on. So it, it was about reaching out to the community rather than dealing with the war side of things. And we did a number yeah. of trips out there and it's still ongoing. It's a fantastic project. Um, just it's a bit of a commute from Australia, but I am hoping to go back at some point. Indeed. So was that with Do Doctors Without Borders or is this something a separate group that was arranging these types of trips? Yeah, so that was a separate group. That was what we called was the Newcastle Gateshead Medical Volunteers, and that was set up by Professor Kader. Um, and he was invited over by the Kurdish government. Um, he has some family connections there. Um, the Bazani tribe is very much involved in, in trying to bring peace to the area. And they were the ones who they had a charity in Iraq and we formed our charity in the UK. And then basically we worked together to achieve the same goal with them doing, you know, them selecting the patients, providing some of the funding, making access available to us to get into the hospitals. Um, and then when we came over, we were bringing a lot of our own implants, our hip replacements, knee replacements, bringing a lot of drugs, antibiotics, things like that, that they just didn't have access to. Wow. that That's an amazing thing to be doing. Was there problems with getting that kind of, stuff into the country did you i mean you said you was, didn't feel safe in south africa i wouldn't think afghanistan would be one of the safest places in the world no well it it, it was amazing in iraq because um basically we were there as guests of the government so we had a huge amount of privilege afforded to us in terms of being able to get around and escorted around and incredibly safe um, we did have one moment when we arrived and um, they stopped the plane and all of a sudden these men with black suits got onto the plane and called out our names and people were getting up and they were like, no, 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 everyone sit, we just want these people. And we were like, holy hell, you know, wow. does anyone even know we're here? <laughs> and we got, we got taken off the plane down these steps on the side. So we didn't even go through the gangway, you know, into the airport. It was sort of like on those little utility steps out the plane and down and we were like, um, we've technically not crossed the border, people. Yes. Like, you know, we officially even here. And we got bundled into this van with no windows and we drove for about five minutes. We didn't know where we were. Um, and then all of a sudden we came out in this beautiful sort of like hotel lobby type thing. <laughs> and there were the same people in black suits with our, all our suitcases and all our passports because we'd had to give our passports in when we got on the plane. And they were just like right back in the same van and off we went to our hotel and we were just like um have we crossed the border do we have a stamp are we even officially in the country yes. you know? but it, it was apparently just like a real vrp government you know sort of service but at the same time you know you're kind of thinking i'm in iraq no one knows where i am i can't make a phone call of holy course. hell what have done <laughs> that's that's uh first class silver service iraqi style obviously 
So oh, you're okay. you're in Brisbane now, and uh, does your husband practice chiropractic uh, in Australia also? He is. So he's yeah. actually a um, he's he's an Australian grad. Um, he's friends with quite a, a few of the the guys around. Um, he's been practicing now for ooh, close on nearly twenty years, and he's now practicing in Camp Hill. He's um, getting himself back into the Australian way of life and enjoying being back in practice. So he's gone from running his own practices. We had a number of practices in the UK now to being an associate, which he's, I think he's just kind of enjoying not having the responsibility for a short period. Very good. And you're obviously quite busy at the, the two hospitals that we mentioned. What's your day-to-day sort of um, uh, look like in terms of you get up in the morning, what, what sort of people are you seeing in terms of patients? What sort of tasks are you, are you doing, surgeries performing, etc.? Yeah. So I, I normally leave the house about quarter to six in the morning. We normally land on the ward about somewhere between 10 past and quarter past six, catch up with our house officers, run through any overnight admissions, anyone who's had trouble overnight. Uh, we then run through a ward round, which includes all our spine patients, um, anyone up on intensive care, uh, particularly checking the post-ops from the previous day. Um, and then we either have a clinic or theatre list, depending on the day. So different days have, have different commitments. Um, and then we would normally either do clinic or theatre and then come around again in the evening. So we normally finish, clinic finishes a little early, most probably around about 4.35. Theatres we normally done by about 5.30, but then we have to wait for our patients to wake up and check they're okay. So we're normally only done then by about 6.37 come back to the ward, another catch-up, walk around, make sure everyone's got the instructions for the night, um, and then home, essentially. So it's an early start and a late finish most days. It's a very big day. So you mentioned in your um, bio, uh, or the one that I read at least, that, that oh, oh, and not surprisingly being a, a chiropractor originally, that you have a particular interest in spinal pathology and deformity. Is this is it mostly spinal cases that you're, that you're seeing? Yeah, so essentially I'm, I pretty much only do spine surgery at this point. Um, I, I did full orthopedic training, so, you know, well-versed with, with a variety of orthopedic procedures, but I'm specializing in spine. Um, the two ways it's divided is adult degenerative pathologies, which tends to be your disc pathologies, your stenotic type pictures, um, and your deformities, adult degenerative deformity, which is different from a, a juvenile scoliosis. And then there's the uh, pediatric deformities and the pediatric issues. So we get um, a lot of tumor cases, spinal tumors that come through that sometimes manifest in childhood and then the, the scoliosis. And a lot of the cases we deal with are special needs children, um, either because they've got various syndromes that makes them prone to scoliosis or because they're sitting in a wheelchair for a long time and you know they're just with the support, just the mechanical disadvantage that they at, they end up with scoliosis. So you mentioned there about you know uh, spinal tumors. Where, where does the uh, neurosurgeon come in and the orthopedic surgeon step back, or vice versa, or is there a bit of a, a crossover between both of those specialties? There, well, well, there is and there isn't. So the the main difference is primarily in the training, and in terms of neurosurgery, their main skill is that they work intradural. Um, orthopods tend to stick extradural right. um, and if anything then goes intradurally then we'd normally get the help of the orthoped the um, neurosurgeon there, there is a lot of crossover when it comes to spinal work um, and a lot of the neurosurgeons are quite happy to take on degenerative spine cases 
um, discectomies, you know, those kind of things, whereas yes. the orthopods are tend to be more in the territory of deformity correction. Right. So in true orthopedic style, we love our metalware, we love pedicle screws, we like rods. Um, the neurosurgeons do, but tend not to get as excited or look at as big constructs as we do. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we tend to bridge large areas, whereas the ortho, the, the neurosurgeons, I mean, I'm very much generalizing here. Um, there are neurosurgeons who do take on big deformity cases, but they, they tend to be less so than the orthopedic guys. Because I've always thought, and obviously incorrectly, that uh, most, say, discectomies, for example, would be performed by a um, by an orthopedic surgeon. But you're saying they're more commonly done by neurosurgeons. I think they're done 50-50. So, for right. example, where I work at the moment, we have uh, neurosurgeons on call covering spine as well as orthopedic surgeons on call covering spine. Um, and it just depends on what happens on what day as to who does the surgery. But both are equally capable of tackling whatever comes through. Um, as I said, the orthopods tend to be a bit, bit, bit more adventurous when it comes to metal work. Right. Um, so, for example, if we're talking corpectomies, vertebrectomies, particularly thoracic spine, um, that tends to be more the territory of the orthopedic uh, team, although there are one or two neurosurgeons who do great jobs in that area as well. One of the things that's happened certainly um, very, very much so in manual therapies such as chiropractic, um, lots of guidelines have been reduced, uh, released over the last number of years and you'd probably be familiar with the three Lancet papers talking about global low back pain. How yeah. much is the work that you do um, governed by pre-existing guidelines as opposed to you know your individual experience or what your mentors have taught you going through your orthopedic studies? Yeah, um, essentially this is slightly different to, to where I come from. So this is where my background as a chiropractor kind of influences a lot of my decision-making skills. Um, I'm a very big fan of, you know, regular chiropractic care and, and really giving chiropractic care a chance for it to reach its full benefit before we consider anything surgical. Um, obviously, an emergency is a whole different, um, whole different conversation. Yep. There are a lot of people, however, who come to our clinics with back pain. And the one thing we do know is surgery for back pain isn't particularly effective. Yep. Um, there are very few cases where it can be effective, and that's if you've got an isolated disc pathology and you've ruled everything else out, um, particularly in terms of like spondylodiscitis, um, some of your other pathologies as well. Um, it, it can be effective, particularly with your foraminal um, compressions because you can elevate height and things like that. Um, but on the whole, your average person who comes in with back pain without any radiculopathy really isn't going to benefit from any spinal surgery. Um, and it, it's a little different in, in Australia because there's a big private sort of practice component to it. And there's always discussions within the surgical field as to how robust someone's um, sort of limits are in terms of agreeing surgery for someone. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people come through not happy with the recommendation that, you know, surgery isn't going to provide the answer to all their problems. Yes. Um, and some of them can really push some of the surgeons to the point where they then agree to do a surgery. Um, 
not necessarily against their better judgment, but, you know, they were sort of undecided. Yes. Um, and, and that patient may then sway them into the decision to do surgery. So it, it's always an interesting discussion to have with someone. Um, and we generally, or me personally, wouldn't embark on surgery unless I was really sure that exhausted all other options. Um, but I, I'm not a fan of surgery for back pain unless I have a very distinct pathology that I can identify. And I guess that's the, the, the rule, isn't it, is from what I've understood is that, you know, if it's absolutely positively clear, if all the signs and symptoms all match up, and I've certainly had um, over many years of practice a number of patients who've just had big whopping disc lesions, you can very obvious compression on, an, on the L5 nerve root on, the, on MRI, they've got a, you know, if they can't raise, they barely raise their uh, big toe, it's a very classic, 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 and they, like you said, don't respond to conservative care. Sometimes you can have all those uh, signs and symptoms, of course, they do respond beautifully to conservative care, yeah. but when you've exhausted everything, that's when people like you are a gold for, for those people. Yeah, I mean, generally, we don't like to jump in and do surgery within the six-week period. So if someone comes with a hot disc, an acute herniation, um, obvious nerve root entrapments, unless they have a distinctive neurological deficiency, so if they've got a painful foot drop or they've got a cord requina syndrome or, you know, there's some kind of neurological emergency, that's when we would consider an urgent decompression. And the aim of that is partly to control some of the pain and to assist them with that side, but really it's about neurological recovery. Yes. And that's the, that's the rationale for, for doing an urgent surgical procedure. If someone just comes in with radiculopathy and pain, we do the MRI, we, we demonstrate a disc bulge, we know that that's the culprit. We try not to rush into surgery because we explain to people that in most cases it will settle down. And we normally give them six to eight weeks and we recommend that they go away and do you know, whatever they feel comfortable with from a conservative side, we give them a range of options. And then we generally make an arrangement to see them back at the six, eight week mark. And if they're still painful then, um, we're then more likely to discuss the surgical options. Um, and the reason for that, and we tell most people, is that, you know, even with a very hot disc, it does settle down. It settles down with care. Um, and it settles down with the right amount of time and the right amount of input from people who are not surgeons. You know, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And any time you embark on any kind of surgical procedure, you're sending that person down a slope that you then can't retreat from. Mm. Um, you're then creating scar tissue in that area. You're removing parts of the lamina to actually access the disc. The risk of then having scar tissue encasing that nerve root long-term becomes much higher. And then if they then need a revision procedure, trying to unpick scar tissue from a very fragile dura is hours and hours of not a very pleasant experience um, with that person then, you know, sort of risking real neurological damage in the process. So unless we um, have a very clear reason to go ahead and do that surgery, a lot of the time we're very reluctant to. So how would you see the perfect setup in terms of uh, the ideal way to manage all these complicated cases, some of them will, will be, uh, I guess, non-specific low back pain, some of them will be radiculopathy, some of them will be discs. H how do you see it all working together given your chiropractic background and obviously practicing as an orthopedic surgeon now? I mean, ultimately what I'd like to have is a way of welcoming everyone into, you know, into whatever facility we had so that if they were having problems, we would catch them at a very early stage. And 
I'm still a very big believer in, you know, if you are waiting till you have a problem, you've actually waited too long. You should be in regularly, um, you know, preventative care, I think, is everything. And that would include, you know, proper conditioning, proper diet, weight control, a, a good level of fitness um, and, and a healthy lifestyle. And I think that is very congruent with the chiropractic philosophy. Mm. And I think if you don't have that philosophy underpinning your practice, you're missing a really big component of life care because you can then connect with those people really early on. They can value preventative care. And then if they do have something happen, or unfortunately, if we meet them at a later stage, they can then see the value of that conditioning because it's never lost. Because even if we have to go to surgery, they enter that surgery stronger and fitter and more likely to recover at a faster rate, which is a win for everyone. So ultimately, I would, I would want to have chiropractors on board really early on. I'd like to have access to some kind of conditioning um, area, some kind of conditioning field. Um, and, you know, both weights, fitness, hydrotherapy, I think is brilliant. I do think the um, psychological aspect is very important. And that could be for pain control in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy. That could be for general motivation life health, just in terms of, you know, being active and motivated in various aspects of your life. Um, I think the spiritual side is is really important as well. And that really is a very personal journey for most people. So I, I tend not to get into the religion side of things, but say, you know, that those conversations you have with yourself, that spiritual connection, whatever field you want that to be, I think that's really important to address. Mm-hmm. And then from a surgical side, I think you need to have good access Um, to surgery you need to have good access to imaging and then you need that post-operative follow-up care as well because that's a time where people are very vulnerable where they think right my surgery's done and then they kind of become abandoned Um, we don't really have the facilities within mainstream medicine to keep calling people back to clinic we just have a huge amount of number of people wanting to access the facility and just not enough time and not enough people to to see them and they don't necessarily need to see a surgeon on all of those visits. They need someone who is knowledgeable, who can provide that care and who can guide them further down their journey once, you know, once our role is, is done. And I think that's such an important part, that pre-care and the post-care. And sometimes people get so focused on the surgery side of things, they actually forget the most important part. And that what the surgery does is is really, really small. You know, yes. you live for years and years and years with the results. And if you don't optimize your results on those two windows, I think you're actually doing people a disservice. So, and in fact, that's very interesting you say that because I often have the conversation uh, with patients that, um, and obviously at a lower level than what you're doing it at, but the, 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 the adjustment is powerful and as wonderful as it can be. Often it's just the fact that it creates the ability for the person to be able to move and do the things they need to do to be healthy. It's not necessarily the adjustment that gets them there. It's the adjustment creates that opportunity. Like I guess in more severe cases, the surgery may create the opportunity we hope. Absolutely. I mean, you know, right from the, right from the time that person makes the appointment to see you, you know, they're motivated. They're showing an interest in, in taking responsibility for some of their care. They might come initially thinking that you're going to take responsibility and then, you know, you can then educate them that this is a journey they need to be actively involved in. Um, and once they reach that stage, everything becomes so much easier because, 
you can talk to them about so many different aspects of their care and they're receptive to that. Um, and particularly the adjustment because, um, you know, I've always said, as you said, it's a very powerful thing, but not only does it give them that physical um, that, that physical boost in a way, but I also think very much it gives a mental side of things as well, you know, that they come in, someone has actually touched them, someone has cared enough to put their hands on them, there's been an exchange of energy, um, there's been an exchange of emotion to a certain degree, there's been an exchange of focus where that person has been the entire focus of that adjustment. Mm. Um, and I don't know about you, but I continue to think about people long after they've gone, yes. and I'm sure they continue to think of the adjustment as well. And that then comes on to their, you know, that influences their relationships, how they interact with other people. It can affect their mood. Um, you know, it's it's just so powerful from that, you know, from that 10 seconds that it takes to deliver an adjustment to how far reaching that ripple effect is. And I think a lot of chiropractors don't give themselves credit for for how powerful an intervention they actually hold in their hands. In talking to some of your other medical colleagues about these sorts of things, I mean, you obviously have a very holistic view on health and uh, consider that biopsychosocial uh, aspect and patient-centered uh, approach that we're that we're all trying to uh, achieve. How do your uh, do other orthopedic surgeons think the way that you think, or do you think it's just because you're uh, lucky <laughs> enough to have had a chiropractic upbringing? Um. It's a difficult one. So I think a lot of my colleagues are just sick and tired of hearing me rabbit on about this because I'm I'm prone to the odd rant or two. Okay. Um, so I think they've they've heard quite a bit from those that have spent some time with me. Um, I, most most surgeons do actually want you know people to go through conservative care before they even consider surgery. I, I don't know a single surgeon who would meet a person straight away and say, right, that's it, you're lined up for surgery, let's go. Um, normally they check that people have had a good journey prior to actually getting to that point, unless, of course, there's some kind of neurological concern. Yes. Um, and the same goes for post-operative as well. But a lot of my colleagues are not fully aware of all the options. Um, and sad to say, as popular as chiropractic is in South Africa, a lot of them don't truly understand what chiropractic's about. Um, and some of them hold the belief that it's, you know, just a bit of bone crunching. Other people sort of, you know, tend to say, oh, it's quite evangelistic if they've, you know, met people on sort of the philosophical extreme. Um, and it's about just trying to educate them in terms of what an adjustment delivers. And different chiropractors present that adjustment in different formats. But essentially, the adjustment is still, is it's a standalone, very powerful intervention. However, it is you know, presented to the person who comes through the door. Mm. Um, and that's the difficult thing for them to understand, particularly as there's a range of techniques. And you explain that, you know, yes, this person might be, um, you know, a, an activator adjuster. This person might do SOT. This person does Gonstead, diversified. And a lot of my colleagues find it difficult to get their heads around how you can have a, a consistent effect with different techniques. Mm. Um, and that always ends up in a very interesting conversation. So, yeah, it's. Um, I think that's something we can do as chiropractors is be very clear in our communication to, um, to, to straightforward medics in terms of what chiropractic delivers because as much as I love the term subluxation, 
if I'm at work and someone mentions subluxation, I'm running for the MRI scanner too. You know, it, it yes. has a totally different contextual meaning. Yes. Um, and it, it's about having the window of opportunity to explain those differences. So one final question before we wrap up, and, you, and you've preempted me by using the term subluxation there. The chiropractic lexicon is a little bit unique. Do you think it holds us back a little bit if we're using that in communication with other practitioners? Or even, or even take it one step further, or even sort of um, using that, uh, those conversations uh, out in, in media or in advertising or even with patients. Where, where would you say that, that the, say that, for example, the term subluxation, where, where's, where, it would be, where would it be good to use? Where would it perhaps be um, a disadvantage for us to be using? I think it's always going to cause you know, some sort of confusion when you're talking about the medical subluxation versus the chiropractic subluxation. Um, and I, I think that that's where we need to find a way of differentiating the two. And unfortunately, some people just hear the term and don't realize that it can be applied in different contexts. So I, I don't actually really have an answer for that. I think that's one of the things that I think will continue to challenge our profession as things continue to go on. Um, it, it does mean very different things. So, you know, in medical speak, a joint subluxation is is virtually an emergency. Yeah, you could argue yeah. that it holds that same urgency from a chiropractic point of view, but, you know, you're talking about different, different ways of practice. When I explain to my colleagues that a subluxation in chiropractic terms is a complex of various things that happen all at once that then give you a clinical picture, it makes more sense to them that we're not talking about one sagittal view on a lateral radiograph, for yes. example, yes. Um, because that's all they see is just that one aspect. Whereas when you explain that actually it's a joint complex with the whole of that pathology, um, you know, and it's a descriptive term rather than a diagnostic term. Yes. Um, they, they seem to understand that a lot better. But it's just with the term being diagnostic in medicine, um, sometimes it's a little lost on them that chiropractic subluxation is more of a descriptive, you know, it's it's an all-encompassing descriptive term rather than just a, hey, look at my x-ray, here's a subluxation. Debbie, uh, I've got to say, I don't know anyone, certainly don't know any orthopedic surgeons that sort of uh, have people like Jim Sigafoos or Reggie Gold as their, uh, as their heroes and mentors. I think when you first mentioned those names, I thought you were going completely in the opposite direction. Um, so that was, that was terrific. Um, and I think uh, you've done a, a perfectly good job in taking the passion that you discovered with those uh, gentlemen and with the chiropractic uh, history that you've had into your uh, medical career. It's been an absolute pleasure. I know you've been you're a very very busy person so thank you so much for spending time to be a part of the ACA podcast today thanks Anthony it's been lovely speaking to you and hopefully the listeners have found this useful I'm sure they will um, that's it for me thanks again for listening I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast mm -hmm.